in Jesus, there is both a complete unity with God and the disconnection of the human experience. And I would go so far as to say that on the cross, Jesus not only experienced the complete connection with God, but also the complete disunity from God. Welcome back to Barefoot to Emmaus. This is Char. And this is Byronius Maximus. That's, this is, that's uh, our guest for today <laughs> is Byronius Maximus. Yes. Uh, imported a, from Rome. I'm a cryogenically 2000 frozen years ago. Roman centurion <laughs> um, who happens to speak English. So Byronius, tell us about Nero. What do you know about this Roman emperor? Well, you you uh, you recently had a dude who was uh, somewhat similar to him. What was it? T... Trump, Trumpus. <laughs> okay, sorry. No, we can restart if you want. <laughs> no, it's great. Great. I love it. So after that funny, what would you call that? Hill pickle? A hill pickle. What? Curd muffin. I, I just. Wow. Uh, anyway. I heard that. that. This is Barefoot to Emmaus. Yes. Is what this is. This is Barefoot to Emmaus where we let our loosey-goosey out and also talk theology. For today, we will be talking about sin and sinlessness. We want to talk about sinlessness, but we can't talk about sinlessness without talking about sin. Seems so let's start by defining how we understand sin. And then we can hold those in conversation with each other as we approach how the Bible talks about the possibility of sinlessness. So for myself. Ooh, great googly. <laughs> yeah. Small conversations small today. Small things. My definition of sin, how I understand sin. Growing up, I had an understanding that sin in its most rudimentary form was evil. It was bad that we do against God, Mm. that somehow we have the capacity to harm God with our actions. and Like extra nails in God's, in Jesus' hands type of thing? Yeah, there's that that hymn, It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Mm. It's my sin. That are the nails in his, in his wrists, right. um, which is just a really heavy and mm. it's a jarring image for a kid to hold that mm-hmm. you have this power to be harming your savior, your Jesus, mm-hmm. and it's that doesn't mean trippy. Yeah, it doesn't mean that we should throw it out necessarily, but it's worth questioning why we use an image that is so painful as opposed to something that is. Um, illuminating, right? Something that, that opens our eyes up to reality as opposed to shocking us. And, and perhaps we need that. But as I have grown in my relationship with God and my theological understanding, I have started to recognize some of the harm that that idea of sin has. Um, for one, it doesn't recognize our standing with God. Um, it sort of frames us as violent, villainous when we're God's beloved children. And I think about how a child makes mistakes and they make errors Mm -hmm. and the parent never sees, well, I don't want to make absolutes, but Mm -hmm. a loving parent 
will continue to love their child even in their mistakes, their foibles. And not only will they continue to love them, they won't view them by that. So the idea that we are sinners is a very definitive label. It says, Mm. this is who you are. And that's not how God sees us. And so why would we define ourselves that way? And so I tried to like peel back the layers and say, what is actually happening when we sin? Mm. And my closest approximation to what I can understand for that is that we are becoming spiritually disconnected or distant from God in what we call sin. Yeah. That, you know, if you look at Adam and Eve, right, they, they have to leave the Garden of Eden, that their present, their physical presence can't be mm. there with God in mm-hmm. whatever actions that are taking place. You look at Jonah and he flees. There's this running away. There's this moving away. Or the Holy of Holies. Yeah. Right. If you are sinful or if you bring something unclean, you will literally be annihilated. Yeah. And and so it's not just a physical sense because I don't believe that God ultimately is a physical being, right? That God's existence is far greater than that. Oh, I loved the hymn today in chapel that said uh, something about like God is not light years away. And mm. I've never heard the word light years in a hymn. <laughs> that made me so happy. There's a first for everything. Yeah. But you're right. The, this idea that God is not some like presence or being kind of that yeah. like is somewhere. Yeah. And the last part of this that I think is really important is that in a relationship, there's a two-way street mm. and that I never think that God is turning away from God's side of the relationship. That just like the uh, father and the prodigal son parable, mm-hmm. he is actively, the father in this case, or God, she, they are actively seeking us out, mm-hmm. actively pursuing us out of love. That is the only thing I think that God can do in God's character is to pursue us in love. Um, that God cannot not pursue us, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in my understanding. And so if the relationship is has any distance, it's because of our turning away. That we are choosing, whether knowingly or unknowingly, mm-hmm. with whatever degree of awareness we have to this reality, we are turning away from this oneness with God, this this deep whole connection with God where we are in fullest relationship. Mm-hmm. And personally, I don't think that fullness can ever be fully restored this side of the second coming or this side of heaven. Um, Because while we are forgiven, we continue to breathe in this air. And I think that the spiritual air, so to speak, of this life is with sin. It is disconnected. It is inherently so. And so we will always have some degree of disconnection. Why? What's the inherentness? The inherentness is the reality that this world and space um, is not fully unified with God, that there is evil, if we want to call it that, since, there is violence. I, I'm not, I'm, I'm trying to dig deeper. I'm not trying yeah, yeah. to oppose things, but since when, like what, what caused that? Did God create it that way? That would seem weird. Yeah. Yeah. If, if we consider the Garden of Eden mm-hmm. as this place that God literally was walking in, mm. I mean, I say literally, you know, however you hold that story poetically and literally, um, I always do, um, pre-Genesis 12 theology, literally, yeah. but cosmology, uh, either metaphorically uh, yeah, or symbolically. 
So looking at this Genesis story and what it's telling us about humanity and God and mm-hmm. this and this world, this creation, this mm-hmm. this created order. By our striving, by our pursuits, the ways that humanity moves in the world, I would grant this the term free will, right? Mm -hmm. That we have the ability to choose things. And I think it's important that we recognize that this free will is a gift because this is what makes us, this is part of what makes us uh, made in the image of God, Mm. this ability to choose, Mm -hmm. that we are not just robots who are being controlled by God, but that we are in fact agents who have the ability to choose relationship with God or choose not relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And the reality that we have that choice means that for it to be a real choice, the negation has to be chosen. The uh, Choosable. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And, and I would say in, you know, a theoretically infinite amount of time. Um, <laughs> it will be. From, you know, billions of people, if it were not chosen, would it really be a choice? Right. Yeah. Um, if 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 like the circumstance of being able to choose it were so inaccessible or minimal, then it's not really a free choice. Yeah. And so when it is inevitably chosen, call it Adam, you know, whatever. I mean, God foreknew that it would be chosen. Yeah, and and I would say that it that it had to be chosen, right, for it to be present in the free will. Right. And so as it's chosen, there's a disruption from that connection, which we have talked before as a frail a fragile connection. There's this infancy to the idea of the Garden of Eden, that it is a plate that is balanced on a pin. It can't stand there, and it is um, not the end-all, be-all. Yeah. Um, and so as it inevitably topples... Well, how... But it was closeness in your in your cosmology, or in, in your image, in your mind? I mean, it's, it's a tough question because we have to then discuss the reality of what that was. I mean, in my mind, we do come from God. Right. And so if we want to talk the theology of the Garden of Eden, then yes, I would say that we that was a presence with God, but that God desired for us to exist, to have life, and that somehow in our ability to have life and to have free will, that that is of value to us in our ability to relate to God and be in relationship with God as we come back into wholeness with God later at the end. So that it's kind of like going to school so that we come back knowing something more than we knew before. <laughs> yeah. I mean, other than going to school. It's a little trite, but yeah. But, you know, that I think about the prodigal son, right? Right. He grew up in his father's home. Um, the older brother represents the Garden of Eden narrative in a sense that hasn't been disrupted. Yeah, hypothetically, functionally still the same in the same place yeah. but relationally because he hasn't had that experience it's he's relationally stale right like there's this <laughs> yeah. expectation or infantile or yeah yeah there's this expectation of what his relationship with his father is that has never been challenged it's never been provoked it's never been pushed to something deeper more intimate and the son has seen the world he's seen the pain and the suffering he has been without the father's complete presence mm-hmm. And in that realized how beautiful his father's presence is in a way that he couldn't have understood before. In a way, perhaps he didn't even have the mind to conceive. 
the, the space to be able to hold that. And so yeah. he has literally evolved as the kind of person that he is to being one who can now be in active relationship with his father. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe this will come up later. Um, he He's different, but what he is going back to is not actually functionally any different than what his brother is in. Well, I think our our relationship to space does define that space. Like, my home feels different to me than it feels for you mm -hmm. because it wasn't your home. You don't have the nostalgia. You don't have right, the memories. Right, right, right. You know, you enter into it as a guest instead of, like, a son or something. And so yeah. even though we can talk about the space is not, and it's not necessarily changing, and to me that space is God, that we can have this unchangingness of God, but then we have changed. And so in relationship to God, there is change. So sin is in this context what? Sin is the disconnection. Sin is the son having left. And now it's a, you know, it's a parable, so it, it's making literal mm -hmm. and tangible the <laughs> theological but in this sense, every step that he takes away from his father's house is greater disconnect. Right. Um, and any action that he takes as well that impedes his relational closeness. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I like to think in a relationship, I can only love you as much as you are able to or willing to receive. You know, that if, if I try to pour love on you and you don't want it, that starts to be creepy. <laughs> right. You know, and so it's not necessarily a limitation of my love for you if you are turning away or vice versa. It's not a limitation of your love for me if I'm turning away. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, we can recognize the relationship having brokenness or disconnect without claiming it to be at all God's fault or responsibility. And other than the necessary responsibility and having created a system whereby that could happen. Yes. And and this is an important part of my construct of the idea of free will and the mm -hmm. theodicy, the you know, the problem of evil is that yeah. I do not want to diminish the significance of pain and trauma and suffering and violence and evil right. that is present in, in this world. And yet theologically I feel the deep conviction to say that the God who I believe is all powerful has chosen that our world hold that because its existence is necessary for something that is greater. And in my mind, that's the free will that evil has to exist for us to have free will. Yeah. And that free will is what gives us the ability to be in relationship with God as active participants rather than passive recipients. Yeah, and that in God's wisdom, glory, power, love, whatever, all of the, you know, this is a thing that we kind of touched on at the end of our episode a couple of weeks ago, that it has to be in God's glory, more all redeemed. In all some redeemed. Sort of that justice will be enacted. Yeah, I do not think that we as human beings have the capacity to enact justice because I believe that justice is something, um, I may even say ontological. That in the in the essence of of existence, that there is a rightness that only God holds. Sure. So we can't enact 
divine justice or God level justice or final justice. And we can. I talk wouldn't about, want to say that we can't enact justice. Period. Well, we can we can talk about justice in a human sense, but right. I think we will always miss the mark mm-hmm. when we do so. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. Right. But to me, you know, if let's say you harmed me in some way, mm. theoretically, in a retributive sense, we would talk about justice as being my equal harm back to you, whether or not I cause it. Like it might be the system that causes it upon you or restricts your freedom so that you theoretically can't keep causing harm or something like that. All of which is just greater violence. It is. Yes. To me, there's nothing just about that. Agreed. And so then we can switch to a restorative model. And the thing about a restorative model is that I don't think it's necessarily a catechesis to use the term justice, but I do think that a more apt term would be healing. That what we have the ability to do is pursue healing. And yeah. so if, if I have caused harm to you, what human justice looks like is actually less about justice and more about healing. How can the harm that I have caused you find healing? How can, yeah. in my situation as one who caused you harm, find in itself accountability and healing so that I do not cause future harm? Because hurt people hurt people, right? Right. You know, that, that I have been broken in order to be able to cause harm. And that brokenness in the most, um, like, systemic oppressive sense, like mm-hmm. as a white person or something, that brokenness is in my perception of the Imago Dei. Mm-hmm. That, and, and, and this gets to not just the individual idea of sin, but the collective idea of sin. Right. That we have fundamentally, as white people, we are beneficiaries, we are complicit in a structure that dehumanizes non-white people Mm -hmm. to varying degrees and that in turn dehumanizes us Mm -hmm. so check out episodes two two weeks ago for more on that yeah well uh to to hop back for a second uh to correct or maybe to catacorrectify wow that (laughs) is uh, now a word apparently it it is now brought Um, to you by barefoot tumeus yeah that i think retributive justice is the incorrect wrong like colloquial uh, mm. rendition of the word justice that that word comes from to justify uh which is and and you know you you see this like in to your sanctify no 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 uh, uh, kind of um more very much to your like core definition of of sinlessness which is to align mm. right if you you know if you're look if you're working on a word document and you say justify left or justify right what that means is <laughs> align all of your text no, I, I only mean that in a theological sense. I'm on Microsoft Word and I'm like, justify this line. <laughs> Holy God, I pray. <clears throat> anyway, so um, uh, so the idea that, that healing is not vengeance um, or equal retribution or whatever, mm-hmm. but, uh, but being realigned, healed towards mm-hmm. who you are, who the other person is, you know, addressing the, the brokenness, the fissure in the world that is sin um yeah anyway i just i I don't think you have to like throw out the word justice in that way uh you can if you want no i don't i don't mean to throw it out as much as to um complexify the narrative i think oftentimes when we think about justice and we use that term the the picture is maybe not yeah entirely aligned with what i think is what is actually in our power which is more the work of healing and that's that's the only clarification yeah. that I wanted on that idea. But anyway, so so to wrap this up, in summary, the TLDR, 
welcome back. Uh, in my mind, sin is spiritual disconnection from God. Mm-hmm. And when I say with God, I also then extend and include that to meaning with others, with mm. self, and with creation. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe all of that is in relationship to our relationship to God. That if, if I am disconnected from you, I am disconnected from God. Right. If I'm disconnected from creation, I am disconnected from God. Mm-hmm. And so it's helpful to express all of that. But in essence, the, the bare line summary, it's kind of the idea of like uh, first commandment or the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, spirit, love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. These two summarize all the laws. In my mind, well, the first one actually summarizes the second one too, because you can't love God without loving your neighbor. And you can't love God without loving yourself. Right. I see that as a cyclical. Yes. Um, you know. Loving God allows you to love yourself. Loving yourself allows you to love your neighbor. Loving your neighbor allows you to love God. And in some sense, too, it goes the reverse. Because Absolutely. loving yourself is the only way that you're going to be able to receive the love of God right. and be able to love God. Right. So, all that, okay, so sin, spiritual disconnection from God, and sinlessness would be unity with God. And in my mind, that is not something that we can achieve in this life. As Paul says in Romans, um, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, no one is righteous, not even one. First uh, John talks says that if you claim to be without sin, you... The truth is not in the you. The truth is not in you. Yeah, exactly. Um, so then what is it that must... I mean, this maybe this is... So what are the barriers to... I still... The question is like, what is sin? Mm-hmm. What are the barriers that keep us distant from each other? what are the things that we can't like get rid of or that God hasn't made available to us to come into union with? Does that make sense? Like, well, yeah. What needs to change? That's a great question. I would say we're not, this is maybe more of where we're going to (laughs) diverge. I would say that we're not meant to come into full unity in God with God in this life, that that is not actually a theological possibility in this life. And that our goal is not to reach some finish line and be like, we're done, we did it, but to be pointing towards true north and moving towards true north mm-hmm. to the greatest of our ability. It's like the um, the owner of the estate who has left, there's a parable and mm-hmm. that the servants are keeping, um, taking care of the estate, the property. Yeah. And this is an image for the return of Jesus that, he will come like a thief in the night, right? And mm-hmm. that if the servants are not ready for that, woe unto them. Now, the thing with an estate is that you trim the garden, you do whatever, and then it grows back. Mm-hmm. And you trim it, you grow, and it grows back. Mm-hmm. And so there's never actually this completion and that it's this constant vigilance that you need to be in continual relationship with the pursuit of that either like cleanliness or whatever, or in the sense righteousness, mm-hmm. that, that we are ev- always pursuing righteousness and never achieving righteousness. In this creation. In this creation, yeah. So then what, that's still, like, what's the thing that is going to be different? Different. Yeah. So Jesus, this is such an interesting thing. In my mind, Jesus entered into a world as a human being with some systemic privileges probably we, yeah. we like to talk about jesus as this oppressed person and in many ways he was mm-hmm. but i think he held both oppressive or both oppressed identities and oppressor oppressive identities mm-hmm. for example he was a man mm-hmm. in, a, in a in a society where men had more privileges than women far more yeah 
far more even than today. And he was a rabbi. Mm-hmm. That he was a leader in the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. And so people recognized him, affirmed him. You know, he spoke in synagogues and people came to listen. Mm-hmm. That's power there. there. There is privilege there. Now, I would say he utilized that power in a way to lift up people who were pushed to the margins in a lot of ways. But that doesn't negate the fact that he still walked through the world as one who had power. Mm-hmm. And so does was Jesus guilty of sin? Because Jesus was breathing the air By of that world. By a liberationist world. theology. In the, in the social sin sense. Right. Like, he was I, I think you need equally to complicit. people. Yeah. Okay, so social sin, the idea is that in contrast to this individual sin idea of like, oh, I've done a bad thing. That's my sin. Social sin is we collectively have done a bad thing and therefore we are collectively responsible even if I'm not actively contributing to that as it continues. Um, so... So I didn't your your, your positionality. Yeah, sure, sure, exactly. But your positionality is still part of that. Mm-hmm. So um, as someone, for example, in the United States who is consuming a lot of resource mm. comparative to the rest of the world, mm-hmm. my complicity in the social sin of environmental degradation is greater than that of someone who is living on far less. Right. When we talk about poverty and suffering from economic deprivation in the world. Right. As someone who has my needs met, who has more than my needs met, I am complicit until that social sin is eradicated. Yeah. And there were people who were starving. There were people who died when Jesus was alive. Mm-hmm. There's no way that God just paused death in the time that Jesus walked the earth. I mean, his own father, I mean, Joseph probably died. Yeah. Within, and of old age, hypothetically, but, you know, of unjust systems that He, as he well. could have had a longer life or something, right? Sure, maybe. Depending on... So, I mean, uh, even to look at that in time, like, you know, <laughs> what does that mean? Like, if we could save a baby born two months premature now, mm-hmm. but, you know, a thousand years ago, that didn't happen, is that, is the disparity between that justice in the world or is that on God? So this gets to a quote that we've referenced a couple seasons ago, actually. Mm -hmm. I'm forgetting who it's by, but the paraphrase idea is that violence is the disparity between what is actual and what is potential. Yeah. In the sense, or the suffering that is actual versus potential in the sense that if there are people who are going hungry now and we have the capacity to feed them, then that is violence. Whereas if people were hungry and there was no capacity to feed them, that would be suffering still, but it wouldn't be violence Mm. because there's no party who is doing the contributing. Whereas today, all of us who live in the United States for the most part, um, all of us who live in wealthy nations or wealthy areas of the world, we have the capacity to care for someone, even if it's ineffective in the long-term model, even if it's inefficient, you know, if I had the capacity to make sure that someone who is starving today doesn't starve, now that we are in a globalized society, that is violence. That I am being violent in my inaction toward them. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the idea of social sin. I guess a, a question on that, pursuing that um, a little bit further. So there's like the the good place analogy where it's like no ethical consumption under, under capitalism, mm-hmm. right? Um, that like a thousand years ago, if I wanted to get flowers for my grandma, I would you know, wake up, walk from my 
village hut that my grandpa and grandma built together, you know, a couple of generations ago, walk to a farm or a market where, you know, people worked ethically and naturally and go pay an equitable amount for these flowers and then deliver them to my grandma and she's happy. Versus now, if I did that, I would wake up in a capitalist nation um, in a house that is built with polluting materials, go put on my shoes or whatever that were made by people who were enslaved or uh, in wage slavery. Certainly exploited, yeah. And then go to get flowers that were also grown probably with people who were exploited in a truck that delivered them to the superstore that also sells other things and then with all sorts of chemicals that are harming the environment in right, the process. Right. And then yeah. pay too little for them and then drive to my grandma. Um, right. I've now done like rather than doing one good thing a thousand years ago, I've now done like one good thing and ten <laughs> bad things. Sure. Yeah. Right. You're and, yeah. So that and that's kind of, you know, spoilers, the thing about the good place of like negative points and positive points and whatever it is like that. Um they say it's impossible to make positive points today. Essentially. That's that's like one of the premises of the good place. Or if not impossible, just like you make one positive point, that's great, but you while doing it you make, you know, dozens of far more negative yeah, negative yeah. points and since you're judged on the balance of those two. So my my question is, you know, we're watching this show right now called The Messiah or called Messiah. So good. Wish there was more Wish, than one season. I mean, we <laughs> haven't finished it, so it could it could go off the rails, but it's very good writing, lovely pacing, very thought-provoking, very good. The the Messiah character Al Masi is he doesn't have a name so far. Oh, he does. Oh, yeah, fine. Panyam or something. Yeah, Panyam. But um, Jesus is basically who he is, uh, portrayed to be, in the same way that like who's gonna call him Panyam? Like if you've spent six episodes calling him the Messiah or Al Masi or Jesus, even though no one ever calls him that. In the same way that like no one is calling Baby Yoda. Grogu, like everyone just calls him <laughs> Baby Yoda, because he's Baby Yoda. This is the problem of introducing your your protagonist's name multiple episodes into the thing. <laughs> anyway, digression. So is is Almasi wearing, uh, you know, shoes made by? If Jesus were to come back, yeah, and wear shoes made by like indentured servants, uh, servitude in Vietnam, like he would be participating in sin. Yeah. Is And is it enough, I guess, to just not wear shoes? Or do you have to actively contribute the true, to... The same is true about all other clothes, too, sure. right? You well, have to be naked and, and or actively... Or just make your own clothes out of a sheep that you found and sure. took care of. <laughs> yeah, and even there, even is if you're to say... separatism enough? Even with separatism, though, you're, you are still... And let's say not just separatism, but active fighting against the system. Right. In your positionality, if you are still among the privileged and the powerful, you are still complicit, even when you're fighting against it. That you fighting against it does not excuse you of your complicity. So, for example, with this idea of an Mm anti-racist, someone who's fighting against racism... In my mind, everyone who is white... And this is not me making this idea that I've... Mm -hmm some scholar, um, that because I, because whiteness is 
systemic and that to be white, you cannot avoid your complicity in that systemic racism, systemic oppression. You are always a racist. So all white people are racists. That doesn't mean it's your thoughts. It doesn't mean it's your active doing. It's your presence in the system. And so you could be actively fighting against racism and then you would be an anti-racist racist. Right. Which sounds contradictory. Um, yeah, I mean, queer theory would jump in and say, like, well, queer theory has actually come around in this big old circle of, like, are we, are we queer because of what we do, right? Mm. Until, until the word homosexual was put in the Bible in 1946, homosexual and the concept of human sexuality was entirely dependent on what one does, mm-hmm. right? Um, you had these words of people who might be, like, prone to this prone to any sort of activity, but but the moral compunction was based on what you do, not who you are. Once the word uh, was introduced into the Revised Standard Bible in 1946, there's a lovely documentary on it, go watch it, um, then it became something that you are, right? So this distinction that I'm hearing of mm-hmm. like the difference between you are a racist even if you don't do anything versus you are racist based on... And anyway, queer theory has then pushed back against this idea of like, intrinsic identity in any sort of way and has drawn it back towards you are what you do mm-hmm. um and in some ways that's helpful in some ways that's that's not helpful um and i think reality is always more convoluted than that and it probably exists somewhere in the both and or in the right. in between somehow bothing it yeah um <laughs> but i want to get it back to jesus if jesus right. was sinning and oh wait, I wanted to okay. one more thing. I think if someone was born white and and was then like raised in a monastery by themselves, then they are not if they were born in a white family or if they were born of European descent or whatever, where in a in any sort of social setting with other people, they would be um they would be white or they would be in a system of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. If they don't ever see another human being, I don't think they would count as white. Yeah, because because whiteness is not an inherent identity. It's a social construct. Right. And right. so if they're outside of society, then yeah, they, they would have no presence in the And collective. so in that case, not culpable of sin? Yeah, like if, if, we, sin? if we took a white baby and sent it out into space, <laughs> right? you know, and, and now it starts its own colony on its own. It's got robots taking care of it or whatever. Right. Um, now even robots have been proven in their AI to be racist so maybe this is going to fall short in some regard but yeah this idea of like fully isolated from all of society that baby or you know even like the kids who are raised by wolves or animals right um that yeah they are not part of the system they're not part of society so i think so i was asking this question about separatism and i think there is an extent to which separatism might actually do it except that if you choose separatism you're choosing to abstain from addressing the harm that you have been made aware of. And so then I don't think you can ever escape that complicity. If you don't know? Yeah, you, you would have to not know. Right. In order to be actually <laughs> exempt, in my mind, from, from the social sin. And there may... Yeah, okay, great. I have a thought on that later when I start. Okay, cool, talking. cool.
Uh, but to Jesus, mm-hmm. was Jesus sinning? This gets to a lovely little paradox of the incarnation. <laughs> right. That you cannot hold this story simply. You cannot say, oh yeah, the incarnation, you know, this is how it works. It is paradoxical. The infinite becoming finite. The unlimited becoming limited. That there is, that in Jesus, the fullness of God dwells. Mm. That Jesus is both limited and unlimited. Mm -hmm. Jesus is both imperfect and perfect. In a very paradoxical sense probing towards the the contradiction that I... Was this on the podcast or was this just our this own conversation? This was our own conversation. Okay. So, si- quick sidebar. Never mind, I'm, I'm not even going to get it. <laughs> um, but we have these paradoxes about Jesus' identity. And so, yes, I think an additional paradox is that God, who is inherently without sin because sin is our disconnect from God and God can't be God disconnected from God's self, right. was both, both, so both cannot sin in Jesus, who ca- Jesus cannot sin, but also Jesus is in sin. There's that scripture, he became sin, right? That we might become the righteousness of God, right. um, taking on our, not just our humanity, but our human condition, including our disconnect from God. And so G- in Jesus, there is both a complete unity with God and the disconnection of the human experience. And I would go so far as to say that on the cross, Jesus not only experienced the complete connection with God, but also the complete disunity from God further than any of us experience in this life. It is this this cataclysmic definitive disconnect that the furthest that we could possibly go, Jesus has extended all the way there, that there is no point further than we can go from God than the complete disconnection, complete Mm -hmm. disunification. And Jesus, as... God's full unification as God's self went all the way to the complete disunification. And again, paradox doesn't make sense in our human terms. But I think it is important to hold that Jesus was both sinless and became sin. Yeah, that messes with a couple different um, atonement theories where like in order to, like the spotless lamb atonement theory where yeah, like yeah. Jesus needed to be sinless in order to count as the the righteous one uh, to take our place with things. And again, I would say that he was still sinless and he was sin or in sin, that, that both of those are held at the same time in a way that has never been true for any other human being, that he was spotless, but he was also spotted. <laughs> <laughs> I think this may be one of the few areas where your uh, where the simplicity of your theology, like, I don't know if it becomes more convoluted. Yeah, I, th- I think it becomes a little bit more uh, tainted by, uh, I don't know. Well, it's it's paradoxical, right? Yeah, and and I love wrestling with these paradoxes. I heard recently, I think I said this a couple episodes ago, but the closer that we get to paradox the closer that we get to truth to god's truth Mm -hmm. and there's something about that that i really love Mm -hmm. that we cannot understand god and it's not just that which goes beyond our comprehension but that which we actively cannot hold together yeah so if if you don't have anything specific to say on that i would love to get to your understanding of sin and then how it relates to our possibility of sinlessness particularly in terms of uh theosis um, 
Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's any more like probing or like one thing that uh, Char and I have been trying to do is to, uh, in our differences, <laughs> draw out supportively, um, like the depth or the height uh, of what uh, the other thinks. Um, and you've been doing a great job in integrity that. rather than <laughs> in uh, opposition of like, well, that yeah. disagrees with this. So. Um, because at certain points, like, it's not helpful to set my theological construction against yours or yeah. yours against mine because we overlap at so many interesting areas or intersect in so many things. But that doesn't mean that, like, those intersections are at important points or at, like, that we even uh, agree on the areas where or why those things intersect. Sure. Um, and if we stand our ground at our impasses, we will both remain put there. Whereas if we challenge each other encouragingly right. to grow, we will both develop. So just uh, for anyone listening, just an interesting uh, theory and, and practice. Yeah, of, we're still growing in our friendship too. Just because uh, Facebook battles don't do it. <laughs> I've uh, uh, continuously convicted of whether or not I should ever post anything on Facebook or ever defend anything ever again or just delete any opposing views. There's something that feels weird about that too. But the boulder feels conflicted. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. So, okay, just to wrap it up for you, and we could have obviously come back to this, uh, that there's no, there's no achievement this side of, there's no like full arrival there. No full arrival. Yeah. This side of heaven. Yeah. Great. Cool. Um, yeah. How did you start? I start. uh, you started talking sin. about, well, you like not only sin, but your, Context of your how experience. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, growing up, sin was like a rule book mm, or like, mm -hmm. here are the rules you can't break. Right. And you'll be punished for breaking the rules. Um, the rules probably have some sort of purpose. Um, but sometimes they're arbitrary. Um, and, and they are determined by usually like what's in the Bible specifically. Um, so, and I mean, even this idea that everything can be known from the Bible. So any, you know, any sin that we can think of is probably somehow extrapolatable mm -hmm. from, from the Bible. Even if like nuclear weaponry is not in the Bible, it, we can like deduce its sinfulness or whatever by com comparable analogies in scripture or something. So that the scripture was the source of what counted as sin or not. Mm. And if we broke a rule, that's what sin was. Quick question. Was mm. there, did you ever find anything that you couldn't fit into what the Bible was saying? Obviously Bible doesn't talk about nuclear weapons, but you can say, Oh, violence or, Oh, you know, beat their swords into plowshares. Right. But was there anything that you were like, I, I don't see where any of this is. There's small ways, right? The Bible doesn't, the Bible actually itself doesn't have any prohibition against, um, uh, well, Bible, uh, again, how do you read the Bible? Mm. Um, um, the Bible itself doesn't have any explicit prohibition against really terrible things like rape or um, abuse of ch uh, children sexually. Mm. Um, I think it's, it's assumed within the text, um, but technically this is one limitation of like having, uh, who was, was it in my queer theory class where it's like you shouldn't need 
a Bible, uh, if you need a verse and a chapter number to tell you you're being a jerk, you've missed the point. <laughs> That's a great line. Um, something to the extent of that. Um, the DDK actually has, I think, something against like sexually abusing children. Uh, it has something against abortion, which none of the rest of the scripture has. Um, so, I mean, there, there's small things like, I, I think abortion is an example of something that's not super clear from the text of scripture. You can kind of derive I, uh, multiple different positions sure. from just the text itself. So I think there's a couple things that are outside, which is one of the reasons why that definition of sin is, uh, less than helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at some point I realized like hamartia is the Greek word yeah. for sin, uh, which is to miss the mark. In Greek theater, uh, in like slightly more ancient Greek than the Bible, um, hamartia meant a fatal flaw, hamartia. Um, it was like Oedipus Rex, his fatal flaw was actually his ignorance. The fact that he didn't know where he came from mm. um, or who his parents were or whatever. That so, was his sin, mm. right? So if I'm reading the book of Matthew and I'm like, I wish I were reading Mark right now, would that be sin because I'm missing the mark? Uh, uh, we don't. Uh, do we have a? We don't have a slow clap, <laughs> so I wouldn't want to give you the good. No, no, it's a good the... cheer. <laughs> Cute. <laughs> um. Yeah. So. So there's. Oh, I mean, there's also this this intentionality, right? Do you intend to sin? Hmm. Um. And my grandmother, bless her heart, was raised in somewhat, uh, if I understand correctly, somewhat of a cult, somewhat I- wow. uh, in this, like... I didn't actually know that. Very, I didn't also... <clears throat> I also didn't really know that uh, until recently. That she was raised with this, and it's it's a similar kind of desperation of, like, uh, that Calvin noticed in the Middle Ages, of, like, we are unsure of our salvation. You know, mm. my my uh, maternal grandfather, my ma- my morfar... Um, <laughs> Uh, is very big on this idea of my, this is where I got the assurance of my salvation. You know, he was a teenager or whatever, and he got the assurance of his salvation. By professing Jesus? Um, I'm not entirely sure what in his mind theologically that meant. Like, he is 100% confident that he is going to heaven and all of that type of stuff. I'm also 100% confident that he's going to heaven, but I don't, I don't subscribe to this idea of the assurance of our salvation as this thing that some people have and some people don't. And, you know, I, I think it's theological jargon that comes from evangelicalism and, uh, Billy Graham and stuff. But, um, so my grandma was raised in this, in this world where anytime she sinned, uh, her salvation was revoked. Mm. Um, wow. And scary. so, exactly. Um, and so, and, and this, this is what Calvin, or uh, Luther, Calvin, one of the two, uh, were responding to, right? That, so he, so the difference between imparting righteousness by the Holy Spirit versus imputing righteousness by the Holy Spirit and whether or not we know that and can be confident of it or whatever. Because Catholicism sometimes, at least Middle Ages Catholicism, had this issue as well. Like, we don't know. We can't know. Certain Orthodox, uh, Russian Orthodox, for instance, um, uh, certain people are like, you. It, it's arrogant to, to think that you know what God will decide at I, the end of time. As I to agree where with you that. Go. Okay, Paul even writes, um, 
Yeah. You shouldn't say who, or you, you shouldn't claim to know who will descend so as to bring Christ down or who will ascend so as to bring yourself up. Bring yourself up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, all that to say intent was a huge thing there of like, well, I didn't intend to sin. Mm-hmm. And so therefore it's not a sin. Um, hmm. Kind of, you know, my grandmother's big on this, on this idea of intent. And I don't think she quite has wrapped her head around practically the difference between intent versus impact. Right? I think they're both important. Of course, of yeah. course. And and my uh, realization of the biblical importance of this is uh, Genesis chapter like 16 or 17 or 18 or something, when I think it's Abraham goes down to Egypt, pretends that his wife is actually his sister, mm. um, and the Pharaoh therefore takes uh, Sarah, I think at that point Sarai, as his wife in, in ignorance, mm-hmm. um, and God strikes Pharaoh's house with plagues, and infertility and pharaoh goes to abraham or uh someone god talks to pharaoh or someone and pharaoh's like god is like you've done something bad and pharaoh's like i didn't know Mm -hmm. and god was like i know that's why i haven't killed you yet but you have to stop now right that that to god ignorance is not a ignorance of sin what was it ignorance of the law is not uh license to break it or something there's some mm-hmm. phrase about that um, but it seems like the ignorance plays into the grace in that story yeah yeah uh, a little bit in some way which is you know whew, that's a question as to god's judgment and god's discernment of mm-hmm. you know what are the, what are the what are the thresholds of when those things happen or don't happen mm. um right in the new testament you know if we practice sin uh then we are not saved well, mm. to practice something is to continually do it intentionally. Yeah. Right? So, and you bring up uh, the concept in, I think, James particularly, that says, like, um, if you if we say we are without sin, then the truth is not in us. And yet at the same time, three chapters later in James, it's like, be perfect. Yeah. And you know, Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Yeah, yeah. Um, James later says, like, uh, that anyone... Who sins is not saved. Uh, he, he said, like, it's very, very confusing as to the way that this is to be, like, understood. Of, like, James seems to be saying both that we cannot be without sin and that we must be or that we are without sin if we are Christians. Which <laughs> I do I do like the tension that James presents. I do yeah. tend to be a fan of James. Um, so. I do have a question for you go before for, go we move forward. Um how does that definition wrestle with the idea of something like addiction? Where if um, you consider something harmful, yeah. but in a, in a sense you are choosing, but it's really not your volition. Right. I don't think of, personally, I don't think of addiction as a moral failure, mm. but as a, a structural or even chemical, like, yeah. again, failure is too moralizing of a word. Um, right. Maybe maybe someone is morally culpable. Maybe Maybe not even hugely morally culpable if they grow up in a system where like they grow up you know if a baby is born addicted to opioids because uh, in utero their Mm -hmm. mother was using yeah yeah. right um addiction is is certainly complicated um i rely on god's grace and acknowledge that um that the system is 
you you said earlier like sin is in the air we breathe mm-hmm. right i i agree um i disagree with the concept of original sin i mean it was a yeah not all theologies that were invented in the fifth century or, or subsequent to the bible <laughs> are bad i tend to be a fan of the trinity yeah um by the way i don't know if i updated anyone like a while ago i think i said something in one of our podcasts about like oh i don't really believe in the trinity like the and my core evidence for this was the disparity between why does the person of the word and the person of the of Jesus uh, of God's son um and word being logos logos being like kind of related to sophia sophia being related to uh hokhma wisdom in the old testament right that seems to be a certain personification of god a feminine one at that in the old testament and then son is this like masculine personification so how can there be three persons of the trinity if there's at least four represented in scripture why are we consolidating the son and the word as the same thing so i was like i don't see a a necessity for the trinity um this is certainly a diversion but it's a fun one i hope you enjoy it um and then i talked to my uh archbishop and uh she was like yeah but god is the only being whose very word is themselves mm-hmm. and is is the very generation of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. So the word is the son. Got it. <laughs> Satisfied. <laughs> Thank you, Mother Maeve. <laughs> Thank you, Mother Maeve. Um, I don't know how or why well that came up. So anyway, oh, that Trinitarian the theology gone. doesn't come up in the Bible, yeah, really. The, the Gospel of John does elaborate that paradox, that tension in the beginning in the yes. beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. It's like, well, how can it be with God and be God? Right. And, right. you know, and then it says the word came to dwell among us. And then it's pretty clear that it's talking about Jesus. So, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and you can, you can retroactively insert Trinitarian theology back all the way in through the Bible, mm-hmm. through Genesis 19, through Genesis 1, um, all sorts of things. Um but Trinitarian theology, I think, is pretty good, even if it mm-hmm. is an articulation of something post-scriptural. Original sin is not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not just against it because it wasn't in the Bible. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to articulate. But original sin is garbage because um, this inheritable kind of thing, um, this inheritable brokenness that is in or inherent uh, uh, or like situated in our being yeah and there's a couple reasons for like why i argue against that right we are created in god's image we have god's law written on our hearts uh um christ came and embodied humanity uh and there's a couple other like reasons to believe that um that we are actually inherently good but Mm -hmm. where does sin come from then you know you talked about the the fragility of eden or whatever I think that um, because very similar stuff about free will Mm -hmm. and the necessity for it and all of those things, that sin is is a a type of brokenness in the world that was caused at some point and then affected all of creation. Mm -hmm. So that the reason that we, I think we are not inherently sinful, I think we are inescapably sinful. Yeah. Um, I think that's a good way of putting it. Or nigh inescapably (laughs) sinful. Do you want to define and unpack that a little bit more? When we say inherently sinful, what is being expressed in that? Why is that harmful? Why are you shifting to this idea of inescapably? I agree with you. I just think it's worth Yeah, a little defining. bit of the definition of like inherent badness or inherent mm-hmm. like like shame. Uh, one of the things I 
think about shame is that shame is the lie that says we are something bad. Yeah. Um, and I think there's so many reasons to think we are something good that has been corrupted or that has been broken or sickened or whatever. Check out our episode on shame. Indeed. Um, and so inescapable sinfulness articulates kind of the reality that that we do sin. We... Uh, like it, kind of this idea of like you are what you eat, <laughs> you know, as you say, sinfulness yeah. is in the air. Mm-hmm. I, tr- I think of it of like, if you throw a little kid in a swimming pool, like they're going to get some of the water. I mean, maybe the water, you know, are, we're porous, like water seeps in through our sure, very skin. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, maybe they'll like gulp a little bit of dirty pool water and that becomes part of their system. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, maybe like, mercury poisoning or something that like it sticks with you and yeah exactly um and to some extent i i think it's it's pretty it's pretty intense it's it can be pretty invasive like it it becomes a part of you but it is not inherently you i i think that's very beautifully said um if you heard nothing else today remember (laughs) this um and that's kind of the way that sin that sin works is that we we are steeped in sin, mm-hmm. in the brokenness of the world, and so so then what is sin? I, I think your image of of disconnection with God, really, really touches on so much of that. I I resonate with a lot of that. Um, we may have found a topic that we agree on more than almost anything else, <laughs> which uh, is where I'm curious about the the point toward theosis. But you're, yeah. you're getting there. Well, I think it's Christological is actually the source of, which if there's a reason to disagree on something, a Christological reason is probably the best reason to have <laughs> as, as differences. Um, rather than like, oh, I just feel this way. Or, sure, sure. You know. um, but, and I think I, it also is paradoxical or has to be paradoxical, but the fact that, um, man, I want to touch on some of the stuff between, the difference between like temptation and sin. Hmm. Like I think it's important. I tried to, I tried to do a little bit of a word study on the different, the potential difference between sinfulness and tempted to sin and yeah. tested and and things like that. And I, I didn't have enough Greek and I maybe wasn't patient enough to <laughs> to get through all of that because you're tempted to quit. Ahaha. Uh, um, well, that's the thing, right? Like we can't, you can't be tempted towards a good thing. Hmm. Um, like temptation, as it's articulated, usually is like to be tempted towards a bad thing, um, a sinful thing. And Jesus, what, but we're not culpable for temptation. Like, we're not responsible for temptation. That's part of, yeah, maybe this is where this connects, is that temptation is in the world around us. And I do think we have an enemy, right? I do think that that Lucifer, the devil, whatever the enemy exists and is trying to, like, bring us out of connection with God. Um, you know, as you would say, connection with God is the same thing as obedience to God and yeah. stuff like that. But, um Jesus took on our same capacity to sin and yet did not mm. sin. Um, did not at any point step out of line with God's will. Um, and I think God's will can be messy. And that's maybe the way that I kind of skirt around some of the social responsibility of Jesus. Right. So here's the thing that I that makes it hard for me. I love the social sin definition. I don't I don't love it. I I 
I bend to the acknowledgement of its of its profundity and significance. Uh, a liberative a liberation theology definition of social sin. Um, I think where it where it fails to account for stuff like maybe where it just it reaches its its end because it starts to creep into paradoxical territory is with Jesus and Christology. Mm. Um, because I, I mean, I just want to say yeah. that paradox that I described of Jesus both being sinless because Jesus is still fully connected to God, fully mm-hmm. God's self and being in sin or being sin. Uh, that's not something that I read from liberation theology. That's my own idea. I'm taking the idea of social sin and I'm building it into my idea. So well, you're I don't want to drag uh, liberation theology down with anything that you disagree with. Well, no, I mean, you're extrapolating. I I was, I think, one of the... You were explaining some of your interpretations of liberation theology and I haven't read much. I've, I've read some. Um, and my first reaction was like, oh, what does that mean Christologically? Mm. And I think I was the one who like pointed out the the weirdness of where it starts to like, where the laws of physics, uh, you know, mm-hmm. right? Like the, the Newtonian laws of physics fall apart at, at the subatomic level. Sure. I think, I think some of the morality or, or the, the ethics of uh, liberation theology falls apart. Once we're talking about God who has no personal need for liberation, mm. um, it's just a different scale. So that's not, but I do think that therefore liberation theology, as I understand it, doesn't address this particular kind of thing. Um, but I, I hear that and not as a invalidation of, you know, but maybe a sense of like what story is missed out. Yeah, this would go off to a different tangent, so we don't need to talk about this, but you said God doesn't have need for liberation. And I was thinking, does Jesus not have need for liberation? I don't know if Jesus does, right? I mean, even I'm... We're watching that Al Masi mm-hmm. uh, thing, and every time he's in a prison, he's just chill. He has no need for liberation in that moment. I mean, less so the uh, incarnate Jesus as a single person, and more how Jesus fully identifies with the people who are experiencing oppression and who are marginalized, as described in Matthew twenty-five thirty-one through forty-six. You're obviously th- thinking something very specific. <laughs> uh, let's talk about that later. Okay. Um, I don't think Jesus needs liberation for Jesus itself. Okay. Is all that I'm saying. Um, I think Jesus wants liberation. I, sure, I, sure, I don't sure. know where you're going with that, but, um, uh, there was something that I wanted to bring up about, uh, Marcella Althaus Reed, who's mm-hmm. a queer theologian, um, who wrote a chapter in a, in one of her books called the unjust Christ, mm. um, articulating that, that Christ is fully, just, uh, as in good, uh, you know, whatever. And yet also there are ways in which Christ is, when Jesus came to this planet, to the, that culture, there were things in which, um, there were things that Jesus expounded from himself. And then there were things that were kind of thrust onto Jesus. Some of the messianic expectations, for instance, sure. were like Jesus had to fit within Jewish contexts of what that expectation was. And sometimes he fought them. Sometimes he, he fed into them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just kind of this point of like, uh, and, and the thing that I see that's beautiful in that, in that is uh, this co-creation mm. of, of God's will with our will. Um, that Jesus responds to right. our will, our creation in this world. Yeah. Right. Um, 
And yet, no accommodation that Jesus does, I think, could be, by definition, considered sinful. Mm. So back to, like, temptation. Um, and maybe this is Gregory of Nazianzus stuff, that, like, once... that what What is it about Christ that that anything that Christ took on was redeemed. Therefore, Christ could not have taken on sin, otherwise sin itself would have been redeemed, which is one of the biggest critiques that I was hearing you say in our talk a while ago. <laughs> you know, when I'm talking about things being redeemed, whether it's malaria or prisons or, or whiteness or whatever, mm-hmm. that I'm not saying that the sinfulness of that thing is redeemed because it's not within Christ. Mm-hmm. Only that which is within Christ that passes through the the filter, so to speak, of Christ's own divine humanity gets to remain in God's economy. So whatever Christ wasn't, I have no problem saying uh, is is left behind. Um, I tend to think that it is more of transformed, um, and so therefore maybe it's not itself anymore. But so that that's how like I think temptation that things that that Christ that takes on are transformed is what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Right. Just for clarity's sake. Yes. Um, you know, so so Christ a human mind, so human minds are are redeemed or transformed. Mm-hmm. The specificity of that I think is actually anti-ecological, uh, right? Cuz mm. Christ wasn't a sheep, sheep aren't. You know, cuz Christ wasn't a woman, women aren't. Redeemed. Yeah, the, like there's limitations. I I would not take that idea as gospel. Uh, the Gregory of Nazianzus idea that that which is assumed by God is redeemed. Uh, I do think it is a helpful starting ground, but you do run into complications like that. Right. If it's taken too specifically or too literally or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so our capacity for sinfulness, sinlessness, is rooted in Christ's sinlessness. Christ's sinlessness. Mm-hmm. Um, so we could not have been sinless before Christ, but in but Christ actually changed the human condition in a way that allowed us to be sinless. That gets to a really complicated thing about time of like, you know, I I, asked, I have the same question about the Holy Spirit. Like mm. people talk, Christians talk about this way in which like having the Holy Spirit must like tangibly means something different. Mm. Like I've heard people make arguments that like the reason the Egyptian empire, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago was bad or the reason that the Romans are, are like pre-Christ or what, that the reason literal civilizations or humans or whatever were bad was because they because the Holy Spirit hadn't shown up on the earth. That some tangibly transformational thing happened in creation at the moment of either the Holy Spirit or yeah. Christ's incarnation. So what about America? Right? They probably wouldn't agree with that, but like for them, what about the USSR? Or what about, you know, communist China or something? Modern? Yeah, because we now have the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Like if, I, you, if you look at another civilization and say, oh, that's evil. And, you know, I think that's a relatively simplistic idea. But if they were to claim that, be like, oh, yeah, Egypt back then was evil because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. What about now? Well, post- I, think you, I think I've still heard people explain it like they didn't, you know, ancient Egypt didn't even have the capacity for the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, okay. uh, you know, it's not that because <laughs> that theology is inherently bent on exclusion. Yeah. Um, they maintain that exclusion by a personal reception of the Holy Spirit or something, mm-hmm. um, or a precise representation of incarnation or something. Once we're Christians or something like that. I have a hard time believing that something tangibly, I mean, this is the weird thing about like 
time. Paul kind of talks about like, oh, retroactively, Abraham was justified by faith. <laughs> yeah. right? Was Abraham in Sheol, like, or Hades or hell or... Just chilling, just vibing. Or um, purgatory or something mm-hmm. until the moment Limbo. in earth history that Christ did his thing? No. Jesus specifically uh, indicates a theology whereby Abraham himself is in heaven. The bosom mm-hmm. of Abraham mm-hmm. is the is the parable uh, that's based on apocryphal literature. Um, that's a good point. Yep. Same thing with uh, Elijah and Moses, right? Were there, uh, and hypothetically also with Enoch, right? People mm-hmm. who were bodily subsumed or whatever it is. Were, like, were these people, like, what is happening with these people? <laughs> um, you know, what is happening with the rest of the people? So mm. I, I don't know. I tend to think that, you know, in, in maybe the, an the fullness or the queerness of time, that that the thing that happened in the moment of the um, incarnation or the moment of the crucifixion or the moment of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit happened at that moment and therefore in all moments. Because of the eternal nature of God? Right. Yeah. That once something as infinite as God entered into the finitude of time, that it became infinite in time, even in our time, but it happened in that moment. Yeah. That's, I guess that's the way that paradox. I get around. Yeah. Another, <laughs> another paradox. Um. Oh, goodness. We can go a little long for today. I really want to get to your theosis. I feel like that's important to talk about today. I mean, so that's just then the thing, is that I think that the world is is broken and mm-hmm. beautiful and mm-hmm. breaking, continue, yeah. and yeah. continually being redempt, redeemed. Mm. I'm just pointing at things like, like scriptural things where people say, like, you, you need to be sinless or you can be sinless. Um, or you must be sinless. Um, oh, I'm looking at, I think I mentioned this last, this is what inspired us to talk about this as I talked about, uh, I think it's Luke 2 or Luke 1, whatever, when Zechariah, uh, Luke 2, um, when Zechariah, father of John the Baptist, is considered blameless, mm-hmm. right? This is the reason f- f- that Catholics believe in the Immaculate Conception, not of Jesus, but of Mary, mm. right? They need this like, disconnection from the flow of original sin Mm. from human to human in order to, so not only did Jesus have to be, uh, you know, from a sinless source into Mary, but Mary had to be a sinless receptacle. Um, So was Mary not unique in that regard if Zechariah was also like that? uh, I think, I I don't know what Catholic theology would say. Uh, Mary holds a special place in both Orthodox and Catholic theology, mm-hmm. regardless. Um, but no the, surprises there. <laughs> no, no surprises. But the the Catholic theology, as far as I know, please correct me if I'm wrong. I guess, um, and if I'm wrong, I apologize. Uh, is that Mary was also the source? She she was somehow immaculately conceived, separate from humanity, mm-hmm. to Joachim and Anna. Um, and so she was also a sinless receptacle so that Jesus from God and from Mary was then allowed or able to be sinless in that way because they subscribed to original sin. I don't think much of that is necessary if you don't believe in original sin. So theosis, the capacity to be sinless. I, I don't know if this is a Jewish theology, if this is a uh, just early Christian theology, but... Mm-hmm. Maybe it's, I, I think it's more of an East, I think it takes more of an Eastern view on mm. perfection, right? That perfection is not the, is not this fragile thing 
that only exists at the elimination of all that is imperfect. Mm. Um, but perfection is shalom, wholeness, mm. which can be a momentary thing, which can be a an experiential thing. I, I don't know. Um, yeah, you've defined it before. It's complete, right? Yeah. That be complete as your heavenly father is complete is, yeah. is one way to translate that idea of perfection. Right. Um, so partially, I'm just looking at, at things like that. Um, biblically. Mm-hmm. In terms of, I mean, you, you brought up eschatology at the end of your kind of bringing this up. In terms of how this relates to end stuff, I, I subscribe to a very embodied salvation and heaven yeah. experience, right? Heaven on earth. Um, and I think we have more responsibility in that than most Christians typically think. That to restore heaven. To, to on make earth. heaven yeah. come. Um, and not by burning down the world. <laughs> to make it come faster. Hopefully not. <laughs> um, although, right, I mean, flippantly in Galatians class uh, last week, we were talking about the reality that according to, I think it's Romans 2, but maybe some other part of Romans, that according to the articulation of the judgment of God um, in whatever, that the best way to make sure that everyone's saved according to certain theologies is to literally kill all Christians and remove every like indication of Christianity so that, by definition, God has to save everyone on the merit of God's grace in their ignorance. It's a very dark... It's a very dark way to, to yeah. you know, but again, not uh, Daniel Platt or whoever... You Pratt, uh, who you quoted last week, but uh, David Platt, the author of Radical, who, as radical and cool as he is, has a really weird and like strangely conservative and I mean, he is Southern Baptist view of um, missiology and our mm. responsibility in that. I don't see it as our responsibility to do these things, but merely our our pleasure, our gift, our mm. invitation to. Can I? Can those not be the same though? That it is a beautiful responsibility. Um, the idea in that that God's not doing it is is mostly what I'm pointing to. Mm. That like God is doing it with us through us. That God could do it. But you're right. Like my my counter to people who are like, well, we are the ones who have to preach the word. Is like, well, what about all of your stories of Muslim people like seeing visions of Christ? God could do it all without you. Right, like that we are being welcomed. Into we are that, being welcomed. That's a gift to the option of doing this. Yeah, it is a gift to us from God, and so I think I think is there is there any place of the need to steward that gift well? Of course, and that would be well, play, maybe where the responsibility comes in. That it's like if you have this opportunity, this option you've been given by God, don't slander it. I mean, that, that's more of like the scarcity kind of judgment mentality, but. Yeah, there's no that idea of responsibility. No, I think I think this is the this is the nihilism. This is the Christian nihilism or the optimistic nihilism of God. Uh, the freedom that kind of Calvin points to, actually, uh, ironically, um, that that we're allowed to do anything and nothing. And you know, you know, in Calvin's predestination. We can do nothing because our like we are allowed to, and also we really are incapable of. We we can do nothing to affect our salvation, or you know, it's not based on works. It is entirely God's decision. 
Now, I just think God has already made that decision, and and, and God has made that decision universally. Um, there's really no... God does not want anything that, that feels like a burden. God wants everything to be done joyfully. That's not an excuse to not do it. Yeah. But... But this, I think if we truly understood, what is what are the only reasons people might not do a thing is because they don't love enough yet. Why don't they love? Why is there sin? Because they are disconnected from the source mm-hmm. of that love, right? Mm. If we knew how much God loved us, we would burn the world down or, or we would set the fire alight or set the world alight in a less destructive way with the response of our love. We would fundamentally transform the world, absolutely. Right, and ourselves and all of that. Mm-hmm. And I think we we should do it, but any sense of shouldness mm. is still like kind of bending to this this yeah desperation or lack or something that like it needs to be entirely from a positive and rested and all of that. Yeah. So here's an interesting comparison. What about a mother or a father, uh, some a parent or a guardian who has a child? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about an infant, a newborn. They depend on you. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of care that you need to give them. Now, most parents who willingly have children consider that a great blessing. Mm. That doesn't always feel like a blessing at 5.30 in the morning when you haven't been able to sleep more than two hours because your kid keeps waking up. Sure. You know, but in the bigger pictures as opposed to the moment by moment, there is this recognition of what an amazing gift this is. Right. And so I wonder if, if maybe there has space for that, that um, in the work of justice and the work of God's kingdom building, um, that maybe it's not always a moment-by-moment joy. Right, right, absolutely. And that, that it ideally would be, right? And so if we're checking in with ourselves and realizing, wow, I'm not very joyful about doing this work right now, um, maybe I need to Sabbath. Maybe I need to mm-hmm. take time alone to pray, you know, follow Jesus's example. Or do it in community or... Sure, sure, exactly. But that um, we can recognize it as a gift and a blessing and a joy in the bigger picture that doesn't need to define every single moment. Right. Yeah. Um, So I guess to, to wrap up on the idea of of theosis and perfection and, and whatever. I think in in can we be sinless? Can I ask you a question yeah. in that regard? Because I feel like there's there's something that I'm curious about that hasn't quite been addressed yet. Um, what does it look like for someone to achieve theosis in this life? Um, I think it looks like a saint. <laughs> um, right. I mean, the, the Buddhists have the idea of a bodhisattva, someone who has achieved enlightenment mm-hmm. in yeah, this life. Yeah. Hy- hypothetically, that shouldn't. I here's, here's a complicating factor. I think that we can achieve enlightenment and then lose it. I mm, think we can okay. maybe achieve theosis and then lose it, like the trimming of the, the hedges, like the, the brushing of the teeth. Got it. Okay. Um, so that moment of like perfection or completeness can fade again, like you were saying earlier. Because of because the world, I think in a, in a world where th- with none of the like sinful influences there wouldn't be but um this is that the vulnerability of perfection uh in a in a good way or a whole way i don't know um so then maybe like rather than the completion of like you've done the thing you've theosized it's right. like in this moment 
there is this beauty, this wholeness, but it's still an ongoing journey. Like like um, the revelation of of the transfiguration to um, Peter, James, and John mm-hmm. in Mark nine, that they saw it. Right. <laughs> I mean, maybe they didn't understand it, so it wasn't like full full revelation. Yeah. Like you said, like they they could have been in that moment the you know structurally or functionally in union but relationally somehow not mm-hmm. and maybe that's the case that they didn't get it um there's something weird about the idea of it being that's the main point of like they got it you know this mountaintop experience they they got it and yet it um went away went away um so what what does it look like i mean i've i've felt moments of the kingdom of heaven at like mm-hmm. camp side by side for instance or you know in the it, right in the middle of a beautiful church service Right. That is heaven. It does it's it's not a permanent thing because it's not everywhere yet. But I think that the only reason it's not everywhere is because we haven't made it everywhere yet. There's this theological language that talks about those as like thin moments sure. where the veil between earth and heaven is right. thinner. And I'm relatively confident that that we have the capacity and responsibility, yes, to make that everywhere. And so you would see it as even beyond a thin moment. It's an open window. Right. Because sure. the idea of a thin moment uh, is that the the veil is stretched thinner. Right. That it's the, almost... The distance, it's almost there, but it's not there. It's like yeah. you, you can see more clearly. Um, and I think, to me, what's beautiful about that idea is to say that even the beauty of those best experiences here, they're still greater to come because we haven't experienced the fullness in any given moment. Yeah, I mean, and if you have a sore tooth while you're in the middle of that church service, then it's not perfect. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, then it is a thinner moment rather than a fully arrived moment. And I I just think that, like, again, my, my theory of how, I think Jesus was, Jesus was special in so many ways. Mm-hmm. But I don't think Jesus himself. His mommy sure thought so. <laughs> I don't think Jesus himself was supernatural. In, in a way of, like, I've said this before, all I think all of Jesus' miracles were just because Jesus was so in tune with the will of God and the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit's actions uh, just permeated throughout Jesus' works that the saints do a similar thing, right? So does it not matter in that sense, then, that he was God? I think the only way he could have been was because he he alone at that moment was God. So his, his godness was necessary for the closeness to the Holy Spirit, but not for anything else. Uh, not for anything else. I'm not saying, oh, what? <laughs> I, I, I hesitate to answer this question okay. because you're, I don't know exactly what you're asking. Sure, sure. Okay. Um, but in a similar way that like in, in some sort of way, you know, the, the um, apostles even pre-Pentecost were doing some sort of miracles, but after Pentecost, we're also doing some sort of miracles. So like, and like you pointed out a couple weeks ago that miracles in some ways, even more significant than what Jesus was doing. Right. We just heard how, uh, Paul just like brought back Eutychus from death. And that's like an equal to Jesus level miracle. Yeah. Um, and so I think those are moments of, of closeness with God, of, of theosis. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, not, not that, we can be good enough. You know, God can work through anything. But with the with discipline and whatever, I think, you know, so that I think working miracles and, and, and walking in union with God 
is a thing that happens mm-hmm. on the daily, right? Mm-hmm. This is that wonder in the mundane thing yeah. that I think it is imminently achievable. Um, very, very difficult to achieve. And mm-hmm. our enemy is is hugely powerful. And maybe not even entirely in, an o- in our own control, right? Right. No, it must be, you know... Uh, you know, I, I really dislike the the dis the uh the self disavowing language that sometimes happens. Yeah, the self denial. Right. The uh you know, I, I have died to myself and it's only Christ in me. No, it, it is you and Christ in you. It is you and God in you. Because God's not using God is God has decided not to use nothing to do this. God has decided not to do this miracle ex nihilo, but through you. And there's a reason why it's you. Um, so, mm. anyway, that's just my hope. Because I, because I think heaven is this kind of tangible thing. And this is, this is then, it gets to my hope of, like, why I'm not a techno-pessimist, is that I think God has the capacity to work through anything. There's nothing we can do that is insurmountable by not only God, but us as well, right? I'm, I'm not actually existentially afraid of, you know, apocalypse or... the takeover of artificial intelligence. Why? Because I think that we have the capacity, you know, God gave us with the power of the Holy Spirit, the capacity to turn anything into heaven. And any there there is a sinless expression of of this world. Yeah. So So we'll have we'll have AI in heaven then. Is the plus cars and plus If if AI exists now, then you know, yeah. Or maybe you know, maybe like Dune, the Butlerian <laughs> jihad will happen, and like people will outlaw artificial intelligence. Right, yeah. like heaven is now. And and to my understanding, it's our responsibility, therefore, and our pleasure, and to our own benefit, to come into alignment with that level of sinlessness. I am not sinless. I don't know if I even know anyone who's not sinless, right? There are moments in which I think I might have been less sinless. There may be our moments, you know, right after confession of sins or something where I might be like not sinless for, for a couple breaths before I think something that's, you know, selfish or outside of the will of God. And that's not necessarily the type of sinlessness I'm talking about. Mm. I'm talking about, you know, the world made whole and... Yeah, anyway. Shalom. Shalom. So in this uh, chaotic world, pay special attention to uh, our benediction and whatever part stands out to you today. So beloved, may you find wonder in the mundane, hope amidst the chaos, and comfort in the love that makes you, you. Go in peace. (music) 